2: Hello everybody and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. I hope you guys had a wonderful week. This week I chatted with Megan Hawk, and bennett uh, at Orca Lab. We went into some different concepts as far as how sound impacts orcas. However, we did realize at the end of the episode that we didn't cover the basics. We just got a little overly excited and into the conversation. So before we get started, I did want to preface kind of some of the information on that. So Orcas rely primarily on their auditory senses. So these guys are very acoustically inclined. They have different languages or dialects, we think. Languages is kind of a more anthropomorphized term to put on it, but essentially these guys have different clicks, whistles, and other noises that they're able to use to communicate to one another. So uh, these guys typically will see hang out within the same acoustic range of one another. So family groups are typically not going to be far enough away from another animal so that they can't hear them. One of the other things that they have is this cool function called eco-location, which I'm sure most of you have heard of, but just in case you haven't, Ecolocation is a tool that these guys are able to use. So essentially what they do, a very oversimplified way of explaining this, is that they are able to send sounds out of the melon of their head. And so these sound waves will go and bounce off of objects creating sort of like an echo, which is where we get the term echolocation. So it'll bounce off an object and then return back to the animal. And these guys are able to use this to kind of determine where their surroundings are. They can use it to know where other whales are. And most importantly, they use this find their prey so without eco location they are not going to have the same success rate in finding their prey unless that animal kind of just is swimming directly across their path which is not always the most common case if you know that you're going to get preyed upon by orcas you're more than likely not going to swim in the direct path of the orca so um, that's why this is important i just wanted to preface the episode with that but thank you guys so much for joining us and i hope you guys enjoy this today's show is brought to you by audible Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com slash breachingextinction and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a title for free and start listening. It's easy. Go to audible.com slash breachingextinction.
1: pretty, pretty frightening sound.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, can you tell our listeners who was making those noises and kind of what's going on there?
1: So that is a recording of the I-15 matre line and the I-15 matre lines are, is a family group within the Northern Resident community of Orcas in uh, British Columbia And that particular recording was recorded um, in the Johnston Strait, which is their sort of core habitat in the summer months. And you can hear at the beginning of the recording there, they're actually echolocating there. They're in Robson Bight and they're catching salmon. And round the corner comes a cruise ship. And that's the the sound that you can hear that erupts into their soundscape very um, aggressively there and... Yeah, I think the most heartbreaking part of it for me is they try, you can hear that they try so hard mm-hmm. to to scream above that noise or to, you know, you can just sort of tell how much extra energy they're exerting to communicate with each other and then they just give up. And uh, yeah, it's it's certainly the most powerful recording that I've ever heard from All Collab and it's certainly something that's happened many, many times before when I've had a set of headphones on sitting in the lab.
2: Yeah. Um, so just to kind of give our listeners some background, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and your relationship with Orca Lab? So my name
1: is Megan and for the last decade now, so the last coming up to 11 summers, I've spent my time at Orca Lab, which is a land-based research station on Hanson Island in British Columbia, Canada. And Orca Lab has been running now for just over 50 years. And it was founded by a man called Dr. Paul Spong, who was originally from New Zealand. And he was hired by the Vancouver Aquarium to assess the intelligence level of the first ever orca that was put into captivity. And he very quickly realised that the whales were um, very connected to sound and incredibly vocal, and after sort of coming to the conclusion that he didn't feel that captivity was the right environment for them, he started to look for where would be a good place to study them in the wild, and he was led directly to the same spot that all Club still stands on 50 years later. And um, soon after that, his uh, now-wife, Helena, Cope founder of Orca Lab. Um, She arrived in the 1980s and she's uh, been there ever since. And yep, together they have created a network of now nine hydrophones, covering a vast area of sort of around we think now nearly over 100 kilometers square radius. It's all been very new this summer. We've had quite a lot of expansion. So we're still working out exactly how much area we're covering now, but it's around 100 kilometers square radius of underwater soundscape. And so 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, we're listening to anything that passes through that area.
2: That's excellent. I don't know of any other group of hydrophones or organizations that have been able to make that expansive of an area of coverage. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the philosophy and history of Orca Lab? It's very unique from a lot of the other uh, research organizations that are out there. So what about Orca Lab is you know, different?
1: I think the biggest thing that um, is different about Orca Lab is the fact that they're totally land-based. And so Paul and Helena both believes that they can collect Um, enough information from these whales without going out on the water with them in boats. And so by deploying remote hydrophones and remote cameras, and then, you know, remotely powering them with things like solar panels and wind turbines, and then projecting these signals back to the lab that we can actually passively listen to all of this underwater soundscape and watch it with these remote cameras, um and learn so much about the whales i mean in, in the last 50 years or has recorded over forty thousand hours of whale sounds and it's been used and broadcast over broadcast over the internet all over the world and it's been used by hundreds of different institutions for various different projects it's got to be one of the largest collections of uh data on a specific community of of mammals in the world if not the most i'm not too sure
2: Uh, absolutely um like a little fun fact when like before we just put the new introduction for this podcast and the original introduction was one of the sounds that i pulled from the orca lab website so it is it was originally northern resident because i couldn't find any southern resident noises online so i used theirs instead um but yeah, that's amazing um, that you guys have that much. There's so much we can learn from vocalization. So how does Orca Lab use these vocalizations to study the Northern residents? Um, and what have we learned so far? So one of Orca Lab's main goals
1: um, on a daily basis is to try and build up a picture of the daily lives of these whales, understanding what they're doing, where they're going. Uh, Who is there? um, Who is communicating with who? And yeah, essentially just trying to build up a picture of of what it is like to be a northern resident orca. And we've learned a a vast amount about, mainly about the, the breakdown of what we would call the dialect of the northern resident orca population. So it's actually fairly a little bit different to the southern residents in that the southern residents you have one clan that's made up of three pods you've got j pod k pod and l pod Mm -hmm. whereas with the northern residents we have three clans of northern residents there's the a clan the g clan and the r clan and they are all vocally separated from each other so they don't share any of the same calls and so within those clans a clan we have various pods in there so we have a one pod a four-pod, a five-pod, and then we have the BCDs. And so that's breaking things down acoustically into pods. And then once we get into the pods, for example, a one-pod, a four-pod, and a five-pod can sound quite similar to the naked ear. But if you really break down these individual sounds that they're making, there's these tiny little differences in the sound. So there's one sound that is made by the A1s, the A4s, and the A5s. And it's a bit of a signature sound of the A clan, really, and it's called an N4 call. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And that N4 call is delivered very, very differently between the A clan, the A1 pod, the A4 pod, and the A5 pod. So just by hearing that one signature sound and by being able to pick out a tiny little difference in that sound, Mm -hmm. we know, even if it's the middle of the night and we haven't heard whales for days and we have no idea who's in the area... We can just hear that one little sound in the middle of the night and we know exactly what family group it is that's coming into the area. And we know not just because of the sound, but if we actually turn those sounds into images on a spectrograph, you can actually see the differences in the sound that's being made. And uh, yeah, I think it's it's pretty incredible. So really being able to understand exactly what families are doing what based on the direction of their travel, what they're doing. So we know they're feeding if we hear echolocation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If they're making, if they're, you know, not making a lot of noise, then it probably means that they could be resting or or traveling very slowly. And we certainly know when they're excited. And another interesting thing about the Northern residents that sets them apart from the Southern residents a lot is that they engage in a behavior called rubbing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's just this incredible behavior that's only documented in a, in a few very individual beaches, um, a couple down south um, near Vancouver, but a majority of the beaches that are used most of the time by the Northern residents are actually just in the Robson Bight, which is in the Johnson Strait. And it's um, a couple of these pebble line beaches that are very, very different to any other beach you'll find on Vancouver Island, covered in very small sort of one to two inch round smooth pebbles on a on a sort of steeped gradient beach and the whales come in and they rub themselves on the rocks
0: mm-hmm. and
1: they rub their bellies on the rocks and they do it for hours and hours and hours and hours and it really really excites them you can tell in the calls that they make that they're really really enjoying themselves it's incredible
2: that is incredible. So it sounds like we've been able to learn a great deal about the emotional state and the family groups of the whales. So the sounds are very important. Um, so how, you know, you guys collect these things, this information through hydrophones um, and you guys are land based. What other logistics go into running Orca Lab?
1: Well, just purely the the logistics of running a, a hydrophone or a camera site that is not in direct view of OrkLab and not connected to OrkLab logistically has huge challenges involved there. So firstly, hydrophones, most of our hydrophones are deployed deployed anywhere between 12 and 35 metres underwater. So in order to deploy them under the water and make sure that they're in a a safe environment where they're not going to get destroyed and where they're not going to destroy other sort of critical marine life, then we have to have divers that go down uh, with the hydrophone, so we drop them off the side of the boat, and I actually learned to scuba dive specifically so that I could help out with this kind of thing. And so we we take the hydrophone down to the desired spot, and we secure it with um, whatever rocks we can find to move around the the module to keep it secure. And then from there, a cable comes up above the waterline, and from there we need to power the Mm -hmm. hydrophone or power the camera. So the station has to be weatherproof um, because there's a lot of electronics involved, radios and antennas that are intended to beam the signal by line of sight back to another tree on another island. And then that radio will send the signal back to the lab from direct line of sight. But in order to power all this, we need to use uh, batteries, very heavy batteries that are sometimes positioned on the top of very high cliffs. Um, and then we use solar power and wind power to power these stations. So, anything from uh, climbing trees to mixing concrete cement on the side of cliffs to diving under the water. There's a lot of a lot of sort of different physical <laughs> exertions that go into sending this underwater signal directly back um, to the lab, but. But back at, back at Orca Lab itself it is a remote location where currently we're positioned about 45 minutes away from the nearest town, which would be Alert Bay
0: mm-hmm.
1: on Cormoran Island. And so purely the logistics of living in a remote location in terms of how we get our water, how we heat our water, our fresh water, that is,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, how we get food, how we power the lab. It's been a huge goal of Paul and Helena's for... Since they first started OakLab to be fossil fuel free, and um, now in in 2020 is is possibly one of the years that we've made it the closest that we ever have to being fossil fuel free, running mainly on solar power um, and wind power. Especially during the summer, we're definitely fossil fuel free. But in the winters, it's a little bit of a different situation.
2: That's so, incredible. Like uh, there's, I don't know any other research facility that does that. That's truly amazing. And so we do have to use
1: boats Um, quite often. We take, we have to take, we've got two wonderful boats at Lab, One's called the June Cove and the other's called Sonic. And Sonic's the little one that I've probably had the most experience um, with. And we take that boat out, we have to quite often, whether it's to go and check on a signal that has gone down or to go and maintain a site or if the batteries need swapping out or we just need to dive on the hydrophone to check that everything is okay. But we also, in the summer months, when we're fully operational, we sometimes have up to sort of 16 or 17 volunteers camping at or collab. And so, of course, everyone needs food and everyone needs clean laundry and and all these kind of things. So very often in the summer, we'll be running in and out of town to grab vast amounts of uh, groceries and do big lawns, big loads of laundry for everyone so it's it's a it's a busy place in the summer that's for sure
2: yeah it sounds like it how often do the batteries die on the hydrophones um
1: it's a it it is a big juggle a lot of the times um especially during the winter I wouldn't say that there's probably any point during the winter where we're fully, fully operational with all our cameras and all our hydrophones. A lot of them, in in actual fact, we take out Mm -hmm. over the winter to protect them from the storms because we have had so many that have been lost over the years. A lot of the ones that are southeast facing in the Johnson Strait, a lot of the critical ones down in the Rubbing Beach, we will take out Mm -hmm. over the winter months. Um, and then some of them are a little bit more secure and, and, and hidden from from the storms that come in in the winter. But I'd say in the winter it's a it's a bit of a it's a bit of a juggle to keep everything um, up and running, especially with weather. You need a good weather window to get the boat out to fix things, really. But in the summer, for the most part, we'll be fully operational through the summer as long as we do a lot of maintenance on the sites around April and May. Then uh, then we're usually good for the summer.
2: Nice. Yeah, that sounds like a busy place. Lots of work to do. Wow. That's like yeah, you, quite an operation. Sorry, go yeah,
1: ahead. <laughs> you certainly got to be a jack of all
2: traits and master of
1: none really when it comes to, when it comes to being at all club and our volunteers come from all over the world and they don't necessarily have to have a marine biology background. A lot, a lot do and have a, a vast sort of interest, um, an incredible sort of, uh, talent and knowledge for marine biology but it's certainly not how I showed up at OrClab. I showed up at Ork Lab with a a cat a video camera and a photography camera and that was my that was my initial way in to try and help them was to um, share my skills and wanting to learn more from them and wanting to tell stories and it's yeah 11 years later and I'm still <laughs> kind of trying to do that but I've learned a lot of additional skills that's for sure.
2: Yeah. Um, do you want to share kind of how that's impacted your life? Because obviously it, it has over the last 10 years or 11 years, you said.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from I I remember. I remember from a young age, about the age of five or six, being completely obsessed with whales and dolphins and orcas in particular. But when I was about 14 years old, I found a book in my library that was called Um, orca, a whale called Killer by a man called Eric Hoyt. Mm -hmm. And it documents a couple of summers in the 1960s set up in the Johnson Strait. And this was all around the same time that the vocal dialect of the Northern residents was really, you know, beginning to be understood by a man named John Ford, who I'm sure everyone's probably very aware of uh-huh. John's incredible work that he did back then. And then it's still John's thesis, John's PhD thesis is still in the lab in a binder, the, you know, the typewriter printed one Amazing. that we use as a Bible every single day to look at the calls of the whales and compare them and understand. It's still a textbook that I use to, to help myself learn every day in the summer. And, um, I sort of became obsessed with the, with the idea of coming out here and being part of this community. And I remember specifically one chapter in which Eric describes being asleep in a small skiff in a place called Parsons Bay, which is actually right opposite from Orca Lab. And in the middle of the night, he hears lots of blows of orcas as they're passing through Blackney Pass. And he counts the blows and he counts the length of the blows and he tries to work out what family it is based on the mix of, you know, big long blows and short blows and tiny blows as to which family groups he was hearing. And I specifically remember thinking one day I will be in Parsons Bay and I'll hear the whales at night blowing and I'll be able to work out who it is. And I've certainly had that experience, but I can't say that I've been able to work out exactly which family it is. Um, but I've certainly had some incredible experiences like that. And I came I came here for the first time after my, I just finished my film degree when I was 21 and I came out here and I actually volunteered for the first time with a wonderful woman called Janie Ray, who I'm still working alongside now. And she, at the time, was running a place called Cetacea Lab, which is slightly further north of Orca Lab, very much focused on the same thing, um, as OrkLab has, she, Janie was actually a assistant at OrkLab back in the nineties. And I spent my first summer with them and I spent my se- second summer with OrkLab and I've just never, never left really.
2: Well, it sounds like a good thing of an unexpected turn in your life that turned out really well. sorry. I'm just like, with the puns, <laughs> too much. Anyways, if you hadn't have
1: got that in, I would have been very disappointed. Okay, good. I'm glad. Most
2: people like them and I understand they're very corny, but yes. Um, yeah, that's like what an incredible like turn that took. Um, and now you're there. Um, so, you know, you've been there for a while. You've see, like, you know, gotten to hear the calls because I know I've chatted with Gloria Pancrazzi quite a few times. And I know she was there and she just raved about how you could hear the hydrophone like all the time. It's just on all the time. Um, so obviously there's been, you know, a variety of different factors that have impacted these sounds. Um, how has, you know, COVID impacted what you've been hearing over the last 10 years?
1: Well, the biggest, I think the biggest thing about our year this summer just passed the summer of 2020, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: um, was the announcement that cruise ships would be banned from the waters of the john the waters of canada Mm -hmm. for the entire of the summer and in in the summer months i don't know the exact number but i would estimate that anywhere between kind of maybe six and 12 cruise ships will transit through our entire hydrophone network from one stretch to the other Mm -hmm. every single day. And sometimes if the tides are not working, you know, if they're going against the tide or something like that, sometimes it can take up to, you know, 45 minutes to an hour and a half for one cruise ship to transit from the top of our hydrophone system in Blackfish Sound all the way through down to the east and outside of the other side of our hydrophone ranges And so if you times that by nine to 12 times a day, that's a huge amount of that sound that we just heard at the beginning of our conversation there. And it is constant. And as Gloria said, there are speakers everywhere. There's speakers everywhere around OrkLab. We're always, always listening. If I'm at OrkLab, you never get a, I don't, the longest period of time I've spent at OrkLab was this year just gone. I spent over seven months, consecutive months there. And for that whole time, there's not been a single moment where I'm not listening to that hydrophone network. Even at night, there's speakers behind my ears, by my bed. You get so in tune with the sound of the ocean and you get very in tune with the sound of boat noise for the most part because it is it is consistent and has been consistently increasing year on year on year um and i have only been around for 10 years you know and i've certainly certainly been around for the the 10 worst years so far because it has just sort of got worse and worse and worse but it's it's kind of frightening how used to that sound you get because so many of my friends or family members must say oh it must be so relaxing listening to whale song all the time because you know you go and have a massage at a spa and they've got whale music playing and that kind of thing mm-hmm. is relaxation for me if I'm hearing the sounds of whales I'm in a state of elation I guess I'm mm-hmm. excited I'm interested I'm alert I'm usually awake mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm making notes every that's everyone's job or club if you're if you're listening to whales, then you always have a pen in your hand You're always making notes about what you're hearing. And these books, Paul and Helena's house in Alert Bay, one of my favourite rooms in their house, is filled with bookcases of exactly the same type of notebook, these little black and red notebooks. And every single one of those notebooks from 1960 through to today, I'd say we go through maybe 20, 25 notebooks a year. They're all in this house and you can pick one of these notebooks out and flip to any page and what you'll be what you'll be reading about is the day of the day in the life of a northern resident on any day between now and nineteen sixty. It's it's an it's an incredible documentation of life of a species that we knew nothing about and still know very little about. But I think the biggest thing that keeps me so invested and so involved in Orca Lab is Paul and Helena's continuous dedication to the philosophy behind what they have built. And the idea of bringing nature closer to everyone's lives without harming it is such a such a meaningful, meaningful, meaningful notion. And just something that I think everyone in the world could definitely do with connecting with a little bit more is understanding how you're connecting with nature and why you're connecting with nature and what how that is impacting nature but by standing certainly for me by standing back and watching and listening for seven months in the same spot is it really does make you feel so differently about the way you do everything really and the way you connect with everything whether it's the seasons or whether it's the food that you're eating, or whether it's the any choice that any choice that you're making, but I think it's certainly that philosophy that Paul and Helena have created, and what they've what they've done with Orcalab is what brings me back every single year.
2: Absolutely, and you know I think it's really important that you bring that up, and I think Orcalab is a very unique institution that you know can serve as a very good role model for a lot of places because that's a theme that comes up on this podcast a lot is the way that we connect with animals and like what is you know the cost of our behavior and obviously you know people listening to this are very aware of what's going on with the southern residents and um you know of course like we have the noise issue too with the southern residents granted that's not the biggest issue but it still is interesting to me that so many people will fight to make noise around those animals when um, we know that it's not good for them and that they're in a dire state.
1: And I absolutely get it. You know, there is some really, it, there is. I personally think there's some really incredible science going on right now and data that has been collected not only on the Southern residents, but on the Northern residents. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, if if you're gonna go out on a boat and you're gonna collect the information on these whales we have to understand that we're living in a state of urgency for these for the lives of these whales we're living in an absolute state of emergency so you you've got to know that that data that you're collection that you're collecting you've got to know why you're doing it you've you've got you've got to have that vision of point a to point z point z being further protection for these whales quieter oceans cleaner oceans undisturbed oceans so that they can go about their lives and catch food and communicate and make babies if that has to be the primary goal and if the if the data that you're collecting if you can it's got to be about legislation you've got to see that direct correlation between legislation otherwise i just don't i don't see it being it's the amount of the time is not to wonder right now yeah. the time is to save and as much as incredible as all this information is that's being collected it's it's got to be done to help save them because that's the only option we have left now
2: yeah I 100% agree with you and there's so much uh, to learn about these animals and from these animals but we can't do that until they're okay and right now they're not okay and like it is a state of emergency and we definitely need to be mindful of every single like impact that we have on the southern residents and the northern residents and any whale that's in the state no matter how big or how small to minimize it as much as possible um but i agree with you a lot of the research down there or up there i guess down there from you is going like you know really well i know center for whale research and then wild orca um, as well as like the Whale Museum, they all conduct a lot of really awesome research in conjunction with legislation. And like Deborah Giles, Ken Balcombe, like all the people at Soundwatch work really hard to work with legislators. But I think you're um, 100% on the money with um, keeping it with legislation. That's so important, especially right now. But we need our legislators to listen too.
1: Oh, absolutely. And that's where that's where everyone has a role to play, because it's not just the scientists that are making waves for these whales to have better lives. It's filmmakers like Gloria and it's photographers and, you know, amazing poets like April Bensk and, you know, filmmakers like Tavish Campbell. And it it just that there are there's so many amazing people working on this coast that are fighting for everything whether it's salmon whether it's herring whether it's the forest everything's just so interconnected and I think one of the things that I've learned is that no one no one's skill is useless if you can build a website if you can if you're good with carpentry or electrics or you know you've got good eyes or you're interested in writing stories or taking photos. Everyone has their part to play in the savior of everything that's around us right now, especially this ecosystem that we are very, very lucky to to enjoy up here.
2: Absolutely. and That's, you know, another theme that's come across in this podcast. And I think that's something that's very important to highlight is like, it doesn't matter what your role is or what you have to offer. Like you have something to offer to the Southern residents. And um we just like the podcast just got a sponsorship with blackfin coffee and like i thought that that's an amazing example of how like what would a coffee company do to help whales and they're like hey we want to give money to pnw protectors and we want to you know share the story of the southern residents and like that's just a great example of like it literally doesn't matter what you can do like there's always something that can be done for the whales but we all have personal responsibility you know and we've had so much good
1: news in 2020, as, as, as hard and as challenging as as it's been for everyone across the world. Mm-hmm. The amount of you know interesting and very opportunistic data that we've been able to collect this summer on the levels of boat noise is outstanding. And it's coincided with the most incredible uh, project that's been going on that's actually led by Janie Ray of BC Wales, who used to be... Um, and still is very heavily involved in all collabs she's set up an organization that's now called the bcchn or the british columbia coastal white hydrophone network initiative Mm -hmm. and she's basically consolidating the entire of the sound on the bc coast from the top in prince rupert it's bringing together various first nations from top to bottom it's bringing together at least six or seven different ngos working up and down the coast and just consolidating everyone what everyone's listening to installing all exactly the same hydrophones exactly in the same systems and computer drivers to really under, understand you know the the fingerprint of sound on the coast of BC in order to better understand how the whales are using the coast and how the boats are using the coast and I mean the ultimate goal is to create legislation to create a quieter pathway for these whales to live their lives on the BC coast but to be installing that -hmm. in twenty twenty when we've possibly got some of the quietest oceans that we've had for twenty years. I mean, you're never gonna come across that opportunity again. And of course we're not gonna see we're not really gonna understand what that data has meant for two, three years maybe from now, once we've really correlated some more data from when, you know, things start changing again, when the cruise ships come back, it will be the next sort of five years of data collection of that's gonna be incredibly interesting.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, it is going to be very interesting. And, you know, that is one of the beautiful things that has come out of COVID is that so many scientists have had the opportunity to study things that are, um, study parts of the environment that are kind of like untouched at the moment. I mean, of course, never fully untouched, but um, that's definitely going to be very interesting. I, we just talked about a study a few episodes ago about um, the impacts of, you know, whale watching vessels on the Southern residents and they had referenced a study about the Northern residents. And it's interesting to see how the two groups um, did react similarly, like it changed their foraging behavior. So I'm curious to see what, what have they been doing this year that's different that they wouldn't have been doing at other times? The
1: Northern residents or mm-hmm. the whale watching
2: boats? The Northern residents. Oh, um,
1: I think We still haven't really got to grips with the data that we've collected this year in terms of the abundance and the sightings. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know if it's because I've spent more time at the lab this year than I ever have done before, but it certainly feels to me like we recorded a lot of beautiful sounds this year. To me, I feel like our area has expanded so we're covering a much larger area of sound than we were before and we're still getting to grips with exactly how much sound we're listening to um but there were some really exciting things that happened this year there was groups that came in that I have never heard before in the whole 10 years that I've been there there's one evening at two minutes past midnight where I sat I just finished my shift and I went up to bed and the ocean was totally silent and out of nowhere came a sound that I have not heard in six or seven years. And it was the clan whales had come in. And I don't think I slept for 17 hours straight because it was just the most exciting, it was the most exciting time of the, whole, of the whole summer. They only came in for sort of just under a day. But tracking this family group that I had, everything was so exciting. I'd never listened to them before, you know. So to be sat there not really understanding whatever, the, what these sounds are, and then having other groups that I did know come into the area and mix with them and move in and out and escort them in and down to the rubbing beaches oh and things, you know, events like that are what really stick out for me this summer. And and I don't know if because COVID's just sort of heightened, you know, heightened everything for us, but we, we certainly collected a lot of beautiful, beautiful sort of undisturbed recordings this year. but I can't say that it, it, it I can't say that it felt like the ocean was totally quiet this summer. We had a, a huge drop in initial whale watching um, in the first few months of the summer but coming through into sort of August September time, there was certainly a, a, a high there was certainly a rise in, in the amount of whale watching. That we had in the area the the amount of whale watching does increase every year but the more worrying thing i think for me this year was the amount of uneducated boaters that there were recreational boaters mm-hmm. that were on that were on the water. Because of course everyone had gone through a lockdown and and everyone was sort of encouraged quite rightly so to enjoy their local their local area and for a lot of people that meant getting out on a boat and going to enjoy the waterways around here and that created a lot of quite frightening and irresponsible boat use around the whales. And that's, for me, more frightening than the whale watching, because I'm quite happy to say that the whale watching industry, in my opinion, around the Telegraph Cove area, as much as it is increasing year on year, the community of people, for the most part, I believe, are um, incredibly conscious and thoughtful Uh, whale watchers
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and uh, there's some there's some really good people working out there on the water whose sort of you know primary goal when they're out on the water is to maintain a respectful distance around the whales and to make sure that their guests are educated in the in the right way
2: um do you know what the regulations are up there what is a safe distance because i know in washington I mean they just put in new regulations, at least around the southern residents. It's four hundred meters for a total of four hours a day from ten to twelve and then from two to four. Um do you guys have similar regulations? I know the regulations for the southern residents are very strict.
1: Yeah, so the in the time that I've been here, for the most part, it has always been 100 meters mm-hmm. as a as a minimum distance. But two years ago, that actually changed to 200 meters, which was probably one of the most significant changes in the guidelines that I have ever seen mm-hmm. in the time that I've been there. And it and it was a really really it had a really really positive impact. I believe 200 meters is a
0: mm-hmm. is
1: a you know double the distance away. And um, it certainly gives the whales more space. I think my big big concern with whale watching is not necessarily the distance that people are maintaining from the whales, as important as I believe that is, and it's, you know, the first thing to be changed. But for me, it's the number of boats that -hmm. are operating around one group of whales at a time and the length of time in which they're spending with the whales. I've seen... Single boats spend seven eight hours around the same group no. of whales. Commercial outfits spending that amount of time around the whales, and it's 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 sickening because it, that that is essentially also one of our primary jobs at Orca Lab is we are watching whale watchers. Yeah, we, you know, we, when we're watching the whales, we're sometimes watching twelve to thirteen boats in a huge circle oh around the whales.
2: As Twelve much as to every, thirteen.
1: And yeah, and as much as everyone thinks that the southern residents, I know that the problem down there is far, far more out of control than what we've got. But I would say that, that it is getting out of control. Oh my the, god! There are, and I'm not saying that this happens every day, but and it's also the time we we. It's nice to know that the whales have at least have some time for themselves. But it's getting to the point now where last year. I witnessed four whale watching boats with a group of whales at 7:30 in the morning. And I just I just don't understand why they feel the need to be out there at 7:30 in the morning. You know, it just it that kind of that kind of excessiveness baffles me. I'd love to see them. I'd love to see restrictions in the future in which the whales are kind of unwatchable from up until 9am in the morning and then, you know, unwatchable after 6pm at night kind of thing. Yeah. At least at least sort of see that they have that time to themselves. And then just a little bit more regulation on how many boats are allowed to be around the whales at the same time. And like I've said before, that the, the community, there's a lot of people working in that community. They're incredibly, um, you know, gracious to each other that they'll, they'll take off and let other boats come in. But, you know, it's still there still are times when there's a huge amount of boats around the whales. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's pretty hard. It's pretty hard to watch, especially in the summer months when I'm based out on a place called Craycroft Point and I have a sort of fantastic view of the whole of the Johnson Strait. And my primary goal when I'm there is not only to track the whales, but to film them. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's quite hard to film the whales when you've got, you know, three kayaking groups and, 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 13 different boats and you know you've got cruise ships and tugs and research vessels and it it can get very very busy and i actually s- used to block everything out mm-hmm. my goal was to get footage of the whales without any boats in it and it just got to the point where i thought actually is it more powerful to have footage of the whales with the boats in it you know and really trying to document how many boats were around these whales and 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 how the, you know, how the whales were maneuvering around that.
2: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I would say that that's very powerful. And, you know, I understand the urge of people to want to connect with a wild killer whale. Like that's, I mean, the whole reason of how this all, this whole podcast started and how like my, you know, you know, getting involved with orca started was because I went on a whale watching trip and I saw an orca and I fell in love and like, then I was like, okay, what am I going to do about it? You know, and I went to work with them and everything. But, you know, you, you learn pretty quickly that you definitely impact the animals and you have to wonder at what cost. And, you know, there's other ways to interact with them. Like you can, like you said, your whole operation is land-based. You guys can do it from land and there's other ways. And there's, you know, you just listed a bunch of amazing filmmakers who are out there producing films so that we can connect with them. And even if it's not the same as in person, you still can build that connection without harming them.
1: Of course,
2: of course. And I understand
1: that there's not everyone has access to, not everyone has access to, you know, be in the places that we are and to have the opportunities that we do, um, to do the to do the work that we do. I'm incredibly fortunate that I've been able to pursue this life that I'm currently living.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and that's also one of the biggest primary goals of all of collab is to share as much to share everything that we're mm-hmm. doing anything that we're everything that we're listening to everything that we're watching we're sharing we're broadcasting it live over the internet there's an incredible organization called explore.org that um sort of fund and and run all of our remote camera networks and so in this in the summer months we're broadcasting up to sort of 10 different cameras throughout our area that are following the whales as they go remotely. And, and we have such an incredible audience that are just watching and following the daily lives of these whales along with us all across the world. And they're even tuning in and IDing whales that I'm not paying enough attention to. Sometimes it's crazy.
2: That's amazing.
1: <laughs> yeah. And they're so heavily invested um, in the lives of these whales more so than we than we ever imagined. And mm-hmm. that's just one of the things that also keeps us keeps us so motivated and keeps us going to sometimes I desperately don't want to hike up the hill at Parsons Island to deliver new batteries to the Mm. system because it's just absolutely exhausting but everything uh, yeah everything that we do is is to is for the whales I guess
2: absolutely
1: it's a simple life to lead (laughs) oh (laughs) If you know the answer of everything that you need to do whether it's chopping wood or delivering batteries or you know, uh, writing down excessive notes, it's as long as you know, it's all for the whales and it's it's an easy task to take.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> um, you did mention that it is like a state of emergency for the Northern residents. And I'm honestly not as familiar with them as I am the Southern residents. How many Northern residents do you have left? And is it the sound that's primarily putting them in the state of emergency? I think state of
1: emergency is is just, a word that I would use, um, not just for the whales, but the, the, probably just the general state of the planet. whole planet Earth right now. Yep. Um, but if we're just sort of focusing on the on the, on the northern residents, I think currently the population stands at just roughly around three hundred whales, just over three hundred whales, if I believe. And um, Jared Towers um, mm-hmm. is the man who has sort of in the last few years, especially with the with the northern residents. Um, has really got to grips with the the way in which the population has been growing. And they have been growing at quite a quite a good rate for a number of years. But actually I think if I'm right in remembering that this last year just gone is the first year in which the population has plateaued, which does naturally happen over time.
0: Mm-hmm. I think
1: communities plateau and they they dip down and they they grow and we may well just be in a in a in a plateau right now. But generally speaking the population is is doing well there's actually also a couple of other quite interesting studies that are going on mm-hmm. with the run by the Vancouver Aquarium Lance um Barrett Leonard is do has been doing an ongoing drone study for about five years now I think it is and by taking pictures from above of the whales they can actually measure the whales and they can not and they can start to measure growth but also health mm mm-hmm. Um, mainly how fat or how skinny the whales are, and it, what's been really interesting is as they, as Lance follows the whales from the north all the way um, around, sort of Prince Rupert area down to the area that they spend the vast majority of their summers, to document how they look at the start of the season and how they look at the end of the season.
0: Mm-hmm. But,
1: um, it also gives a good idea of things like how many whales are pregnant, and then we can gauge in the next year if the whale doesn't come back with a baby that the birth has been unsuccessful and that's an interesting thing to to get to grips with but I think outside of boat noise there's obviously a vast number of things that I can sort of visually see happening around me the the biggest one being the salmon Mm
0: -hmm. the
1: lack of salmon and not because I'm actively involved in any salmon kind of research but because I've spent 10 years surrounded Ten years. I've spent the last ten years in an area that has been surrounded by fishermen that are no longer catching fish,
0: mm-hmm.
1: by the First Nation in Alert Bay, the Namgis that have slowly seen so slowly seen their fish decline, and mm-hmm. and this has been attributed quite heavily to um, closed net
0: mm-hmm.
1: fish farms in the Broughton Archipelago. And there's been an incredible amount of activism which I'm not a massive fan of the word activism, but there's been um, a huge amount of demonstration, I guess, on the destructiveness of closed net fish farms in the Broughton Archipelago and how important those waterways are to the wild salmon, um, which ultimately leads to the stock of grown-up salmon, which the whales like to eat.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> um, and so this year, actually, the last few years, there's been an incredible, there's been a lot of incredible good news in the Broughton Archipelago with the removal of a lot of the, the fish farms and the numbers that are coming back from how the salmon stocks are starting to replenish themselves is, is um, pretty exciting. It'd be really good to see. Not all the fish farms have been removed yet either. Mm-hmm. There's still some still some remaining in First Nation territory as well, which is frightening. But it is uh, it is definitely, there's been some good news about salmon. And some bad news about salmon in the, in the last few years. So outside of, outside of boat noise, I would say my sort of primary concern outside of boat noise would be salmon. But it's certainly not something that I've been actively um, participating in apart from uh, taking pictures and, and helping out with films, I guess.
2: For sure. So the northern residents, I thought they ate herring. Do they eat salmon as well? oh yeah yeah absolutely
1: they they're not eating um they're not eating chinook in the same to the Mm -hmm. same extent that the the southern residents are um but yeah primarily salmon
2: okay um i'm curious you did say that you know you mentioned activism and then saying that you didn't like that word and then using demonstrations do you care to elaborate on that and maybe discuss the role of activism or demonstrations and how that's maybe helped or hindered the Southern or the Northern residents or Salmon? Yeah. I mean, I think
1: my, my gripe with the word activism, I think is, is not necessarily the word in itself, you know, being, being active in participating. It's I think it's more the sort of social connotations that come alongside being deemed an activist. I don't think, I don't understand why it is labeled as activism for wanting clean water. Mm-hmm. And it is not labeled as terrorism that huge conglomerate companies can damage water. That I just that's the one thing that kind of gripes me um, on that but I do I I do believe that it has the word activism has a lot of power behind it. Without activism, the the Broughton Archipelago would still be filled with fish farms and the salmon stocks would continue to decline. But because of a handful of First Nations and because of people like Alexandra Morton and um, Ernest Alfred from Alert Bay, the and, you know, organisations like the Sea Shepherds, the, mm-hmm. the, the Broughton Archipelago would still be filled with fish farms today. And so the work that, the work that they have done for salmon, I think is, is one of the most incredible movements that I'll ever see in my lifetime in this area. Yeah, Maybe not. There's always hope that bigger, that yeah. bigger movements will make bigger waves, but it's certainly been, it's certainly been an emotional ride watching, watching all of them go through that and what they've achieved.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if 2020 taught us anything, it was that, you know, you never know what to expect. And like, you could say that, and then you could be surprised. And I've had so many times where I've been like, oh, this is the best like whale that I've ever seen. And then I see an even cooler whale or have an even better exactly. encounter. So you never know. And, you know, I do have so much faith in humanity and in the fate of the environment at least around the Northern and Southern residents because of the people that are around um, and the dedication and like the love that you see coming through those people. So, oh, exactly. It's
1: hard yeah. not, it's hard not to, it's hard not to be completely infected by positivity when you spend time around these, all these people that are doing these amazing things and whatever, whatever part it is that you're playing, you, you are a part of it. And and yeah, it's absolutely infectious. I'm 100%. so so thankful to everyone that without them I without them I'd probably be a pretty miserable human being. <laughs> That's fair.
2: Yeah. That and is... without
1: the whales as well. If I hadn't have found the whales and the people that have been connected to whales, then I I don't know how I don't know if I'd be as happy as I am.
2: No, I definitely agree with you. It's a very special community and it Like, it's just like a common bond that you share and that you know that you share. Um, but, yeah, no, it's absolutely infectious. Like, any conversation that I have with Gloria or anybody that's new to this or, you know, the girls that are on the Ocean Lovers podcast, they're not Orca people, but they're, like in this kind of movement as well, it just like brings my heart so much joy, you know? And any new person that I talk to, like including this conversation, I'm just like, okay, now like, this is what life's about, you know? This is like why we need to wake up and and work hard. And, you know, there's so many amazing things that that come out of being a part of this community and that, you know, just being around orcas has. I wish the the
1: listeners could see the biggest smile that's on both yours and my face right now. Yes.
2: (laughs) Oh, I totally yeah. agree. Um, so we are getting close to the end. So the question that I always ask is what can we learn from the southern residents? But I want to know what we can learn from the northern residents and maybe what can we apply to the southern residents and other species.
1: I think one of the biggest things that I've learned about, that I've learned from the northern residents is uh, just love and peace and acceptance like that they just they're so kind to one another (laughs) there's no there's no it's just all so social spending time around them and understanding more about their lives they're just so bound by you know mutual connection and family they're so socially socially tied and they're so kind to one another and there's no, there's no aggression and there's no war and there's no, it just feels like a much, I feel like everyone would live a far more simpler life if everyone lived the way that the Northern residents lived. And I know that's a totally unrealistic <laughs> and, you know, it's a total fantasy world to live in. Mm-hmm. But I've been lucky enough to spend ten years listening to them and watching them, and it's certainly brought a lot of peace and tranquility into my life. I'm not saying it's always peaceful and tranquil, because right. <laughs> running a running a you know helping helping out at an organisation like OrCollab, there's so much that goes on behind the scenes, mm-hmm. of course. Yeah, I guess. I guess I find it. I find it, I've always found it quite hard to talk on such a basic level when it comes to questions like that. Yes. About how they make me feel or what I've learned about them. I think I've always found it really hard to kind of articulate any form of answer without sounding totally insincere. (laughs) Yes, that's fair. But, um, yeah, I can tell you with great honesty that, um, I don't know what I would what I would be or who I would be or what I would be doing if I'm not if I wasn't doing what I was doing and it's all because of them and it's all because of people like Paul and Helena and yeah I'd really love to play you a beautiful recording at the end so that we could end on something that wasn't boat noise (laughs) yes
2: yes let's do that let's listen to which which pod are we listening to?
1: I'm gonna play you out with a recording of the A four pod. Okay. Who are possibly one of my favorite families to listen to, but I could tell you that about many other families. Of
0: course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but, yes.
1: Yeah. We'll uh I'll play you out with um I'll play you out with the A
2: fours. <laughs> okay. Sounds good.